The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit midtowncolumbia.com partner. Well, good morning, church. Happy Palm Sunday. In case you guys weren't aware, we're one week out from Easter celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. It's good to be with you guys. If you have a Bible or a phone and you're not there, go ahead and get to Luke 11. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. That's good to be with you guys. Like Ant said, my name is Tim. I'm one of the church planning candidates uh, in our family of churches. So that means I primarily spend time with our downtown church, uh, but I'm excited to be here with you guys at Two Notch this morning, and not only because you guys start your gatherings at 11 a.m. instead of 9, which is very nice because I got two extra hours of sleep this morning. So I'm feeling good and I'm ready to go. I hope you guys are too. We're talking about God's Word, and so it's an exciting thing uh, this morning as we gather. So we're in the middle of a series called Personal Liturgy, where we're talking about the habits, the routines, the systems of our lives are setting us up to be particular types of people. And we're taking a chunk, three weeks out of that series, to talk about prayer and how prayer is a way that God has given us to combat self-reliance, to push back against our desire as humans to get things done on our own to rely totally on ourselves, and God has given us prayer, and so we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer. So two weeks ago, Ant started with the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, this Our Father. What does it mean that as the people of God, we're the children of God that approach God as our Father, and we want to run to Him, we want to cling to Him, we want to look to Him for all of our provisions, and then last week he talked about the second part of the next part of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. What does it mean to pray in God's kingdom? To pray in God's kingdom in our hearts, in the hearts of those that we know, and in the hearts of those around our country and around our world that we don't know, that we want to see God's kingdom come. So this week, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what do we do when we become disappointed in our prayer lives? What do we do when we face disappointment in prayer? You see, if you jump on board with this series and you start praying as a regular part of your Christian life, or if you've been a Christian for a while and you've been praying for some amount of time, you've probably faced this part, this point in your prayer life where one of two things happens. Either it feels like God is not answering, that he's distant, that he's not talking back to you, that you're not receiving from him, he's not showing up, or he is answering and it's different than what you've asked for. And what do we do? What do we do when God delays or when he answers and it's different than what we asked him for. So I want to ask two questions this morning that's going to kind of frame our time. The first is, what do we do when it seems like God isn't answering our prayers? What do we do when it seems like God isn't answering our prayers? And second, how do we handle our prayer disappointments? How do we handle our prayer disappointments? You ever been there? You ever been praying for something for so long and it feels like God just isn't showing up? But he's not answering Let me tell you a story about a time I was disappointed in my prayer life with God. So before my wife and I moved back to Columbia this last summer, we were doing college ministry uh, at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. Go Cards. And so we were working with college students there in our very first year of ministry. So we were fresh and we were excited. I started meeting with this guy named Joe. And so I was meeting with Joe and we would meet every week. He was not a Christian, wouldn't claim to be a Christian. So we just started reading the Bible together and, and praying and seeking the Lord together. And I remember just starting being so excited, just going and telling our other staff, telling friends, like, this guy, he's going to become a Christian, he's going to start following Jesus, all this crazy stuff's going to happen in his life. And so we started praying for Joe, and we started praying that the Lord would move, that Jesus would save him. And then about three months in, I noticed that we kind of started spinning our wheels a little bit. But about three months in, it was kind of like we were having the same conversations over and over, that I was telling him things in his life that needed to change and that needed to repent of, and he just didn't really care. Three months in, four months in, five months in, he still didn't want Jesus. He still didn't want to be a Christian, still didn't want the things of God. Loved hanging out, but just didn't want Christ. And about nine months in, I hit a point 
or began to doubt, began, began to be uncertain. That uncertainty and that doubt led to frustration. It led to, to disappointment and depression. I was asking this question, God, I don't understand why you're not showing up in his life. I'm, I'm praying, I'm, I'm seeking you with this. Why are you not showing up? You see, the Bible gives some categories for us of why God wouldn't answer our prayers, right? So the Bible says a few reasons why God wouldn't answer. Because we're, we're asking for the wrong things. So it might be that we're asking for selfish things or things that only benefit us at the expense of others. I knew that the Bible gave a category for asking with wrong motives. So if we ask selfishly or spend what he gives us on ourselves, I knew that God wouldn't answer. I even knew there was a category in the Bible for why he wouldn't answer because of unrepentant or unconfessed sin. So I knew if there was something in my life that I was hiding from people or not repenting of, I knew that God wouldn't answer prayers. I had categories for these things, and so I started checking myself and saying, okay, I feel like I'm asking for the right thing. Like, I feel like, God, you want this person to become a Christian too, so I feel like it's a good thing. I feel like I'm checking my motives, and I'm sure there's some off ones, but I also, I want him to come to know you so that you get the glory and you get the honor and you get the praise. I want his life to be different, and I'm checking myself. I feel like I'm confessing sin and I'm repenting of sin, so what's going on? God, why are you not answering me? I feel like I'm asking the same thing over and over and over again, and you're not showing up. Why is he not getting saved? Why is he not becoming a Christian? Why are you not answering my prayer? God, I'm asking you to do something that you should want to do. Your word says you want to save people. Why are you not showing up? How do we handle that? How do we handle it when we pray for our sister or brother or mom or neighbor or friend or whoever it may be to come to Christ and he doesn't answer how we want him to? What do we do with that disappointment? What do we do when we constantly pray for healing and we call our life group and the pastors to come and pray for healing and the Lord doesn't heal? How do we handle that disappointment? That hurts, right? It's, it's real, right? We don't want to ignore the emotions. We don't want to stuff it. We don't want to put it on the back burner. That's a real emotion. So what do we do with it? How do we process through it? The beautiful thing about our God who we serve is that Jesus is not distant from us in those moments of disappointment. He's not distant. He's not confused. He's not wondering what's going on. He knows exactly what we're going through. And I were talking about this yesterday, about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying before he faces the cross, saying, Lord, if there's any other way that this can happen, then let it be done. And yet he still goes to the cross. Jesus knows what it's like to face trouble and disappointment in prayer. So the beauty of God's word is that after uh, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is going to tell two stories. So Jesus sets up, this is how you should pray, and he walks them through the Lord's Prayer, and then he follows that by telling them two stories. These stories uh, in the New Testament are often called parables, and these two parables are really helpful for us as we think about and process through our disappointments in prayer. So the first one starts in verse 5 of Luke 11. Hopefully you're there by now, Luke 11, starting in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, so here we have a friend who has visitors come into town, and this is before the days of 24-hour McDonald's drive throughs or cookout right up the road, right? You can't just take him to the nearest fast food place. So he goes to his friend's house, and he's going to ask him for some food, for some loaves. And it's important to, to mention here that this man's reputation is actually on the line. So to have visitors in Jesus' day come from out of town to your house and for you to have no food prepared for them would actually be a huge insult to that individual. 
It'd be, in essence, to say, we weren't expecting that you were coming. We weren't excited about it. We didn't make the proper preparations. We didn't care. And so this man's reputation is on the line. His standing in the community is on the line. His relationship with this person that has traveled to visit them is on the line. So in essence, when he's going to the middle of the night, it takes desperation to go in the middle of the night to your friend, right? You guys ever feel desperate in your prayer life? You ever feel like you're praying desperate prayers? Like, God, I'm at the end of my rope here, and if you don't show up, then I don't know what I'm going to do. This is that uh, kid sick in the middle of the night. You don't know what's going on when you're rushing to the hospital kind of desperation. This is midnight, and you're fighting against the battle of temptation, and you don't want to fall into the same sin for the 20th time amount of desperation. This is sharing the gospel for the 15th time with your friend or coworker or neighbor type of desperation. This is end of the month, and the bills are still there, and the money has run out. Desperation. You ever go to God with that kind of desperation? I know I do. We have to. We're his children, right? As, his fa- as our father, he calls us in that desperate place to go to him, to run to him. And that's where we find this, friend. Desperate, middle of the night kind of desperation. Pick it up, verse 7. The neighbor answers. He will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So the neighbor says no. The neighbor says no, but we keep reading verse 8. Jesus says, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, impudence is not really a word that we use in today's society, but the Greek word here is, is really fascinating. It's the word anadea, and it means something like shameless persistence. I love that, shameless persistence. Uh, there's a home video that my family and I like to watch whenever we get together for the holidays, and it's me as a two-year-old. So, disclaimer, I was a very chubby kid, uh, so I was 10 pounds when I was born, and I only got bigger from there. Uh, we actually have home photos of my brothers wearing the same outfit at 10 months that I was wearing at four months. So that's just a little bit about me. I was a chubby kid, and I like to eat, still do. Uh, and so this home video is my mom trying to film my brothers, and in the background you hear this two-year-old just crying, goldfish, goldfish. And you turn, and the camera pans down to me, and here I am, two years old, just chubby cheeks, holding up this little plastic cup, looking at my mom going, I want goldfish. That is shameless persistence. But catch this, that's what God wants in our prayer life. He wants shameless persistence. He wants us coming like two-year-old children, crying, weeping, looking up, saying, you're the only one who can give me what I need right now, and so I gotta have it, and I'm gonna chase you down until you either tell me no or give it to me. That's what we have to be about. We have to be shamelessly persistent, desperate, showing up to the Lord at all hours of the night, 2 a.m., begging, I need you to show up. I need you to show up. I've put myself in such a position where if you don't show up, then I am out of hope. That's shameless persistence. Shameless persistence is when your life group gets together for the 20th time or the 30th time, praying for that one person you want to see come to Jesus or even come to Easter gathering. That's shameless persistence. It's, Lord, I know I've told you this 20 times, 30 times, but I'm going to keep pushing in because I know that you are the one who can answer. Shameless persistence. And here's what God is not doing. God is not like the neighbor in the story. God is not inside the house, door closed, saying, go away, don't bother me. Parables are often told by Jesus to set up a framework, to set up a contradiction between how humans treat each other and how God treats us. 
And so this story is setting up that, that parallel, setting up that contradiction. It's saying, okay, if the neighbor would finally get up, this sinful human finally goes and helps his friend out of annoyance, then the question has to be asked, how much quicker does God want to answer his people? How much quicker does he want to answer us? So we're meant to hear this parable and say, okay, if that's how I respond, right? If I'm in the grocery store and my, friend just, and my kid just keeps nagging me, mom, give me this, dad, give me this, give me this. And finally, I'm like, fine, we'll just get one to shut you up. How much quicker does God respond? He loves to respond to his children. He wants to respond to his children. So we're meant to read this parable, hear this story from Jesus. We're meant to ask the question, if we don't give up so quickly when we ask our friends or our neighbors our coworkers or our parents when we're in need. Why do we give up on God so quickly? Why do we give up on God so quickly? I love the, the picture that Isaiah 62 gives of this. Isaiah 62, starting in verse 6, is going to be on the screen. This is God talking. He's talking to his people, the Israelites, and he says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So this is God talking, and God says, I established watchmen. Israel, my people, I gave you people literally so that they would give me no rest. That they would plead with me and plead with me and plead with me until I would establish Jerusalem and make it a praise in all the earth. This is what God is saying. God is saying, hey, children, hey, people, hey, hey my church, bother me. Petition me, seek me, ask me for things, nag me, don't give me any rest. Because he loves it. He loves that. He loves it when his children come to him shamelessly persistent, seeking him and asking him over and over and over. We gotta see this. If if God is good, which the Bible says that he is, and if he's for us, which the Bible says that he is. And if he's working all things together for his glory and our good, which the Bible says that he is, then he has to have a reason for our waiting. He has to have a reason for our waiting. The Bible would tell us that he's using that time of waiting, that time of persistence to grow us, to to shape us. It's doing something in us. It's teaching us to be consistent. It's teaching us to wait, and not in a, a passive waiting, but an active, shameless persistence kind of waiting. I love that song that we sang to start, right? I will wait on you. Lord, I'm, I'm waiting on you. I'm actively, continually asking as I wait for you to answer, as I wait for you to show up. He wants his children to come back to him over and over and over again. One pastor puts it this way. He says, God waits because our prevailing is good for us. May the Lord forbid that we would lose heart and fail in the very thing we need. Mighty, prevailing prayer. The very thing we need. Which, guys, to get this, persistent, prayerful pleading doesn't change God. It changes us. Persistent, prayerful pleading doesn't change God. It changes us. So let's be a people in the waiting of shameless persistence that continues to seek the Lord. So at this point, I want to tell you that there's a good answer or a good end to the story, right? So I'm meeting with this guy for several months. Months and months go by. About a year goes by. And I want to tell you, because I'm standing up in front of you preaching God's word, that the story ends well. And he becomes a Christian, and he gets saved, and he starts serving in ministry. And the Lord does all this work in his heart, and that's just not how it went. Uh, About a year into meeting, we made some changes, some small changes in our ministry, and he was gone. Never, Never saw him again. We never 
uh, met again, texted him, called him. He kept bailing, kept ignoring. God didn't answer my prayers like I wanted him to. So I gave him no rest, and God said, no. So what do I do then? What do I do when God gives me a different answer? I'll tell you what I wanted to do. I wanted to grow cynical and bitter. I wanted to quit ministry. I wanted to give up trying to reach college students. I wanted to fold it in, throw in the towel. Let's keep reading. Luke 11, verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. God answers prayer. All right, so I want to drill that truth deep down into our hearts. God answers prayer. It says it here, if those who ask, they will receive. If they seek, they'll find. If they knock, the door will be opened. Okay, so, so scripture is clear. God answers prayer, but there's another layer to it. Keep reading verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Sometimes God answers differently than we ask because we think we've asked for a fish, when in reality we've asked for a serpent or a scorpion. We think we've asked for what's best. We think we've gone to God and asked him for what is best, but God knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows what we actually need. God might not always give us what we want, but he'll always give us what we truly need. You ever asked God for something, gotten to know, and turned around just to see he's given you something better? I was talking to Aunt about this as I was preparing to preach, and he was talking about how his boys are learning and trying to understand why they can't always go to their grandma's house. So they're like, but going to Gigi's house, Gigi, right? Going to Gigi's house is a good thing. Like, why can't we go visit grandma? And aunt is trying to, to tell them and push into, it's a good thing to want to go to your grandma's house. It's just not the best thing right now. It's a good thing for you to want to go see her. It's just not the best thing for you. As God's children, as redeemed Christians, we have good desires. We have good wants. We have legitimate things we feel like we need. But because God knows us better than we know ourselves, he knows what he truly needs to give us. And this is hard. As someone who constantly struggles with controlling his own life, I want to have the next 10 years mapped out. And so I want to ask God over the course of these next 10 years exactly what I think is best for the plan that I have written. So God constantly is reminding me he's in control, that he knows what's best, not me. So sometimes that means saying no to genuinely good prayers because he's teaching me something. He's trying to remind me that he's in control and I am not. So what happens is we get to an answered prayer that is different than we asked him for. And our temptation is to throw it back in God's face because we think it's a serpent or a scorpion. But Luke 11 is clear that God doesn't give serpents or scorpions. He gives his people fish. That's kind of a a hard frame for us to gather. But here in this time, fish and what the the children are going to their father is asking is, is daily necessities. They're asking them for food. They're asking them for for good things. Fish and eggs, this is a big part of their diet growing up. They're asking him for sustenance. He never fails. God never fails to give us what we need. So we go to God, we, we ask him over and over again, and it seems like he isn't answering. And then he finally shows up, and he says a different answer than what we asked him for, and we're heartbroken. Right? He didn't heal like we asked him to. He didn't save like we asked him to. He didn't reconcile like we asked him to. He didn't show up like we asked him to. And in our hearts, we begin to grow bitter. So the next time we think about going to God with something, we hear this little whisper of doubt. Where was God last time? Where was he last time? He didn't show up. He didn't heal like you wanted him to. Remember that? 
Remember when you prayed for your friend to get saved and then they moved away and never met Jesus? Remember when you prayed for this and God didn't answer? And that whisper of doubt leads to disappointment. And disappointed people will never pray kingdom prayers. Disappointed people will never pray all of the big prayers that Aunt told us about last week. Disappointed people don't pray for Pinehurst to look more like heaven. Disappointed people don't pray for sex trafficking across our world to end. Disappointed people don't pray for racial reconciliation. Disappointed people don't pray for their needs to be met. Disappointed people don't pray for their neighbor or their friend or their coworker or their mom or sister or dad or brother or whoever to come to know Jesus. Disappointed people don't pray kingdom prayers. But Luke 11 gives us hope in the midst of our disappointment. So here's what happens in our lives. We start hearing these whispers of doubt, these whispers of disappointment, and then we show up at life group. And we're disillusioned and we're disheartened and we show up and somebody looks at us just talking about our week and they they ask us this question. They ask, where did you see God move this past week? And suddenly the gospel has a little crack in our hearts, right? And, And all of a sudden we start seeing a little bit of light. We start thinking about our week and our month and our year and we start seeing God's hand in all of it. And we realize in that moment, as we're thinking about what God has done in our lives, that like, while God is, may not have given us what we thought we needed, he did give us something even better. He gave us himself. He gave us himself. That's the promise of verse 13. Look at this. Verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we who are evil can give good gifts, how much more our Heavenly Father? And the answer is infinitely more. Infinitely more can our God give good gifts. And notice what he gives. The end of verse 13, he gives us himself. He gives us himself. He gives us his spirit. He's answering our prayers as he sees fit in his goodness and his mercy, not as we wanted, but exactly how we needed. God doesn't give serpents or scorpions. He gives his spirit. He gives his spirit. He gives us himself. He says, all of these things that you're asking for are good things, but more than anything else in your life, I want you to have me, to walk closely with me, to know me, to pursue me, to feel loved by me, and to love me back, to show others me. He wants us to have himself. That's what Luke 11 promises us. In the midst of all of this disappointment and all this, God, why haven't you shown up? God is saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. I want you to have me. The ultimate act of God giving us himself happened at the cross. Right? So not only does he give us himself now, but he has given us himself in the most beautiful way. And in fact, we know what love is. We know what goodness is based off the character and actions of God. And the definitive measure of that is Jesus Christ on the cross for you and for me. That's how we know God loves us. That's how we know God wants to give us himself because we saw it because he did it over 2,000 years ago when he sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, actually taking our sins on himself on the cross. God is saying, look at what I'm giving you. I'm giving you me. I'm giving you myself. This is the Bible says, Romans 5, 8. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
says it again, 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. This is disappointed Christian, disappointed in your prayer life. This is how you know that I'm good. This is how you know that I love you. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The gospel of Jesus is the definitive declaration for all time that God is good and he has answered prayer. He's good and he's answered prayer. And we point back to the cross and say, see what he did? See what he did for us? He's not distant. He's not absent. He's giving us exactly what we need. A friend of mine shared this story with me. It's this example of, imagine a, a woman comes to you on Monday. She says, imagine she comes to me and she says, Tim, I give you, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Not because you did anything, not because you earned it. I'm just going give, to give you a million dollars. And I'm like, this is awesome. You're so generous. This is so great. I can't believe you would give this to me. This is awesome. I'm going to go give some to Aunt and Two Notch. This is great. And then... On Tuesday, I call this woman and I say, hey, uh, I'm free for lunch. Do you mind taking me out for lunch and buying me my lunch? And she says, no. She does not cease to be generous. Her saying no to that request does not cease to be generous. She has already proven she's generous on Monday by giving me the million dollars. See that? God does not cease to be generous. He does not cease to be good just because he says no to something we ask for. He doesn't cease to be good. The gospel, Jesus on the cross declares once and for all that God is good and his goodness is no longer on trial. God's goodness is not on trial, but functionally, functionally we want to live as though the jury's still out, right? So we go through our lives with this lens of, okay, God, you gotta answer my prayers. You gotta do what is good for me. You gotta do what I want so that I can see that you're good. Prove your goodness to me. And God is pointing back to you. Did you not see my goodness for you in Jesus on the cross? God wants us to have him. He knows something that we struggle to grasp, and I've already said it, that more important than anything else that he could give us on this earth is the fact that he's given us his son. And his son has made a way for us to know him, to know him deeply and intimately. That's what I learned from that year of praying for that guy. That's what the Lord was showing me. So a year of doubt, a year of disappointment, a year of uncertainty, a year of, God, where are you and when are you going to show up and when are you going to save this guy? All of that year, God was shaping me and molding me and giving me more and more of him. He was turning me into a certain kind of person. He was scraping off rough, rough edges. He was revealing idolatry in my life. He was showing me things about my sin that I had never seen before. And, and at the end of that year, I looked back and God didn't give me what I asked for, but he gave me himself in a beautiful way. I learned more from that year of disappointment in prayer and ministry than I did for the next several years of success. I learned more about the, the nature of God, the goodness of God, because more and more I was having to run back to, God, where are you? Can you give me more of yourself? I need it right now. I'm 2 a.m. I'm asking for the 20th time. I need more of you because this is not working. This is not happening. And all of our waiting and all of our disappointment, God is shaping us shaping us into people that are more and more like Jesus. So I want to leave this time uh, just saying a bunch of good things and then being like, all right, enjoy your Sunday. Uh, but I actually want to give us a chance to process through a lot of this. So the band's going to go ahead and, and come back up. The reality is that our disappointments and our struggles are not too big for God. He can handle them. He invites us to take them to him. Uh, this is so crucial. Ann talked about this week one, that God as our father invites us as his children to bring all of our brokenness and all of our struggle and all of our sin to 
him. He wants us to come to him as our father and pray desperate prayers. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to put two questions up on the screen, and the band's just going to play a little bit behind us. And I just want to give us space to process through our disappointments. What does God seem to be delaying in your life? What do you feel like you've prayed for over and over and over again, month after month, year after year, and he still hasn't shown up? Where did he show up and answer differently than how you asked him to? So these are the, the two questions that I want us to process through. The first one, where am I disappointed with how God has delayed or answered my prayers? Where am I disappointed with how God has delayed or answered my prayers? Number two, in what ways am I most tempted to measure God's goodness outside of the cross? In what ways am I most tempted to measure God's goodness outside of the cross? So I want to give us space. I want to give us time to process through this, to wrestle with these questions, to take them to the Lord. Maybe you need to pull aside a life group member or a spouse or a friend and and confess these things, to confess how you've been disappointed with God in your prayer life. Take that time now.
1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Church, the beauty of our faith is that we not only serve a king who laid down his life, but a king that defeated death and rose again. So because of that, scripture would say that we not only have hope for this life, but the life to come. That as Christians, we have hope, that we are a hopeful people, that hope is what we have. Hope for life eternal with God. Where there'll be no more disappointment, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more struggle, no more hurt, where he promises he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will spend eternity worshiping and celebrating everything that he has done, everything that our king has accomplished. And every time we take communion, when we're taking that, that piece of bread, which represents Christ's body, and the juice, which represents his blood, we're reminding ourselves that we have hope for this life and the life to come. That that hope is found in Christ. Christ crucified, Christ dead and buried, and Christ risen again and reigning at the right hand of